This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. If you're a sales professional and if you want to bring your sales success to a new level, then join my friend, co-author of The Go-Giver, which sold 500,000 copies. Go-Givers sell more in the sales classic Endless Referrals, Bob Berg, in Orlando, Florida, for his next Go-Giver Sales Academy. This is a live event. So at this live event, you're going to get Bob and his business partner, Kathy, and they're going to work on helping you achieve greater success on your own terms. This is what I like about this program. Each workshop is limited to only 20 people. So you're going to get Bob and Kathy's individual attention. You're going to get to strategize with them. You're going to get mentoring. And you're going to do this in a mastermind environment with really highly successful people who are going to learn with you and share with you so you can learn and grow together. You're going to learn about communicating value. You're going to learn how to spread that value and touch more lives. And you're going to have a greater impact. You're also going to discover your natural attributes and advantages and how to use those. And as one final note, I'll add here, I'm adding this note because I read the book. Bob's got a tremendous framework called Objection Proof, and you're going to learn how to deal with every objection, get to its root, and work through it together with your customer, something I call resolving concerns. You're also going to leave with a 90-day action plan. You're going to move forward with clarity, with focus, aligned with your purpose, and you're going to go out and you're going to do great work because that's what the Go-Giver is all about. So if you want to join 20 people, when you join, there'll only be 19 spaces left, go to thegogiver.com or email kathy at thegogiver.com and join Bob Berg and Kathy for the Go-Giver Sales Academy. You'll find more information in the show notes and uh, do reach out and let me know when you get registered and tell Bob that I sent you. If you don't already know Ryan Holiday, it's going to be difficult for me to introduce you to him in any way where you really get a picture of who he is, at least just by reading his biography. And that's probably true of a lot of people. Ryan's a media strategist and a writer on strategy. He's got an interesting backstory dropping out of college at 19 and apprenticing under author Robert Greene, who wrote The 48 Laws of Power. He then went on to American Apparel, where he was director of marketing, and his campaigns were used as case studies by Twitter and YouTube and Google. He really took advantage of those social channels very early on. And those were written about an ad age in the New York Times. His first book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, is about media and manipulation thereof. His second book is called The Obstacle is the Way. And it is a mindset book that's great for business people and entrepreneurs centering on the idea of the Stoic philosophers. His new book is called Ego is the Enemy, And it's another book that prominently features Stoic thinking and philosophy. And what's interesting about it is it's a very good application of those kinds of mindset ideas to business and success and happiness today. So that's the best I can do. You're going to get a better view of who Ryan is right now. Ryan Holiday in the arena. Hey, Ryan, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm wonderful, but I got a massive list of questions for you. Let's do it. So we're going to have to get to business and jam through some of this. People will know you from the obstacle is the way, I think, mostly. But I want to go back a little further than that, and I want to just ask you about Stoicism specifically. And for people who aren't familiar with the philosophy of Stoicism, can you just start us right there at that point of what is Stoicism? Stoicism is an, is an ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, but I can almost sense when, when people hear it, it's like, oh, it's, it's ancient philosophy. They immediately think, I don't need that. That's not for me. And of all the philosophies, Stoicism is, is the most practical. It's not this theoretical or metaphysical explanation of the universe. It is designed for people who do things, right? The most prominent Stoic is Marcus Aurelius, 
who was the emperor of Rome. There's another famous Stoic, Epictetus, who was a slave. It's a philosophy designed for the difficulties of life. And if I had to sort of define its ethos into a single sentence, I would say the Stoics believe that you don't control what happens to you, you control how you respond. And so the philosophy is designed almost entirely around shaping that response. So it's the distinction between what you control and what you don't control and emphasizing all of your actions on responding well. You know, all success-oriented people will tell you to read Man's Search for Meaning, right? Yes. I mean, his logotherapy, I think he called it, Mm -hmm. is really very much stoicism. Well, not only as far as we know, you know, Frankel was familiar with the Stoics, but logotherapy, the word logos is a term from Stoic philosophy. He defines it as meaning. The Stoics sort of define it as like the the purpose of nature, the purpose of the world. So they they are very linked. And I think what's so fascinating about someone like Frankel is that, you know, he, he spends time in three concentration camps during the Second World War. He loses his entire family. But he basically says to himself, this can have meaning if it changes me for the better. And it, it does change him for the better. And he, he says that, you know, human beings always retain the ability to decide what something means to them in their life, even the worst, most heinous things that you can experience. And so in, in that way, Stoicism is, again, not an abstract philosophy, but it's something that's been tested in some of the most horrendous and horrific situations that humans have ever found themselves in. That is a good summation of The Obstacle is the Way, which we're going to put in the show notes because everyone should go out and read that book. It's a super helpful book, especially for the practical application. So Ego is the Enemy is your your new book. Yes. And, and that is your second book, I think, that features Stoicism so prominently at some level. I want to just hear from you. Wh- where did you encounter Stoicism? And, and you're wrapped around the axle on this one. I know what happens. You, you just get onto something, and it makes so much sense. You're drawn to it. But this is the second book where this is so prominent for you. How did that happen to you? Where did you find this, and then how did you get so deeply? It was a very random thing. I was 18 or 19 years old. I was in college and I I was writing for my college newspaper and I got invited to go to this conference. I think the conference was actually being put on by Trojan condoms of all things. Um, And and I was invited and Dr. Drew, who's now the host of a show on CNN, but at the time he he was the host of Loveline and I was an enormous Loveline fan. Growing up, I'd listen to it almost every night and I'd always looked up to this really smart, wise, sort of thoughtful, but somehow very current person. And so a- after the conference, I went up to him and it was a habit that I'd picked up in my life at that point. And I, I just said, hey, like, I really like to read what books would you recommend? Because I thought he was smart and that he might be able to recommend a few books for me. And he recommended uh, a book on the Stoics and he recommended a biography of Theodore Roosevelt. And those two books happened to be probably more than anything, two books that shaped the entire course of my life. And it all happened from this random encounter with a random person who I asked for a book recommendation. And so it's something I still do to this day, but it, you know, it was this chance book recommendation. The book shows up from Amazon and it was what Tyler Cowen would call a quake book sort of shook everything that I thought that I knew about the world. Not, not a ton at, at 18, but, but it, it was when you, when you pick up Marcus Aurelius's meditations for the first time, and I'm sure other people have had this experience with other books, it just cuts to the very core of who you are. It's this very special book. And and that's what set me down the path of exploring this topic. That's still a great book. I keep it on my bedstand. I mean, if you if you want to go to sleep at night, that's a good book to help you to get there pretty quick, I think. Well, look, you're not the only person that's done that. I mean, when when Thomas Jefferson died, he had a copy of Seneca, who's the other famous book, on his bedside, and actually in French. And so it's a genre of literature that great men and women have studied now for thousands of years, usually sort of at the beginning or the end of the day, because it's so reflective and it asks so many sort of important questions. Yeah, it puts things in a different kind of perspective. And right. I, want, I want to get to that. But let me first ask, you, you don't go to all the trouble to write a book. My first book is October 11th, and I'm shocked at how long it takes to do some of the things just to, to go through this process. Yeah. And, unless you really have something, you know, a burning that you have to say. What is it in Ego is the Enemy? How did you get hooked onto that? And why, why did you write this book now? 
I love that you say that because I think writing books is considered to be very glamorous by people who have not written <laughs> books. And there, there's a line from George Orwell where he says, writing a book is such a miserable experience. If one is not driven by some demon, they will never yeah. make it through. And I think that's right. If you don't have something, what I tell other authors is, if you feel like you can't not say it, then you might have an idea for a book. Yeah. And I think a book can also have several impetuses. For me, the, the first one was, I would get these emails from these people who were just clearly living in like a fantasy world, like completely overestimating their abilities, talking in a condescending, rude, you know, overblown tone. Like they thought that to be successful, you basically had to be an asshole. And I would struggle to respond to these people because I could tell they were also struggling or hurting or having trouble. And so I wanted to, I, I felt like these people were living in a movie where they were the movie star so that was the first angle that I was coming from. And then, you know, as I was kicking this book around, American Apparel, where I'd, I'd formerly been the director of marketing, basically imploded, led mostly by the, the CEO and the founder. And so when you watch someone that you look up to and that you admire and that you've studied under, essentially implode, you know, a company that was at one point worth close to a billion dollars, you sort of go, man, what happened here? And could this happen to me? Do I have the sort of seeds of my own destruction sown inside me already? And I think we all do. And, and so for me, I, I wanted to write a book that was very much the opposite of most self-help books, which tell people how awesome they are and how they can do anything. And I wanted to sort of look at the way in which we often undermine our own success and, and create problems for ourselves that we then blame on other people. Because it's easier. It's yeah, easier so, than, to, than to absolve yourself of that responsibility. Well, I mean, to go back to what we were saying about how hard a book is, right? To know what you're getting into on a book, for instance, honestly, is a very intimidating prospect. To know that you might not be good enough, that it, you might not know what's going to come out the other side, or that you know it might not succeed. These are discomforting, unpleasant feelings. And I think a lot of times when people are faced with feelings like that, they compensate for them with, with, with ego and posturing and sort of loudness and aggressiveness. And I feel like in, in a lot of ways that makes what they're actually trying to do harder, but in the short term, it might make it more comforting. You know, Stephen Pressfield, yeah. he talks about the resistance. One of the ways that you can avoid the resistance in the short term is to create this persona but in the reality, the, the resistance will always come and get you in the long term. It's just part of being a human. I mean, the, yes. the self-doubt and all of that, it comes with it. And almost the bigger you try to imagine something, your vision, the more scary it is. And so what do you do? You, exactly try to, right. you try to use bravado and fake courage to look like you're going to plow through it, even though everybody has that doubt. It's funny because I tell people when I meet with CEOs and they're honest with me, they all say the same thing. I'm just glad nobody's figured out that I have no idea what the hell I'm doing here. You know, sure, they, no, they, no, they, we, they will they will admit it to somebody that they trust to just say, I don't even know how I got here. This is crazy. I think we all have a little bit of that imposter syndrome. And it's better that you work through it and study it. And, and you have those moments where you're honest and real than to sort of blow past it, which I think far too many of us do. And then when we ultimately do fail or experience some sort of adversity, that's when everything just completely disintegrates. I want to talk about the Greek philosophies for just a minute, because my understanding of the Greeks, and you're so deep in this, you're the right person for me to riff on this with, their philosophy wasn't a college philosophy course. And that's why I think your work is so valuable and so interesting to people and why they should pick up both of your books, is because it, it wasn't, they weren't having an intellectual exercise or discussion. They were actually deciding how do you live your life? How do you live to be happy? And so, it, it wasn't college lectures. They were actually living it. And so, if you committed to being a, a cynic or a, a skeptic or whatever you decided to be, that was the whole life. You had to be all in on that, especially if you were the teacher. So, now, I think we think of philosophy as something that's in universities and on campuses. But yes. I, I, I want to I ask this this way. What are the challenges that you think give rise 
to the need for a personal philosophy like Stoicism? And what do you see the benefits as being for regular individual people who have never thought, wait, I need to have a philosophy? Well, yeah, look, I, I think this is also true for, for Zen Buddhism and, and other philosophies, uh, good philosophies anyway, that they're about just helping you with the difficulties of life. I had a conversation with Pete Carroll, who's the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks after the Obstacles Away came out. And what we were talking about, he, he said that he used to give a lot of talks and he would go into these rooms and there would be generals or CEOs or high performers or even other athletes. And he would say, who here has a philosophy? And he would ask them to raise their hand and very few people would have one. They were just winging it, essentially. And the problem with winging it is that it is very hard to wing it in the face of a personal tragedy or the immense stresses of work or starting a company. What I love about Stoicism is that it's, again, it's not this metaphysical explanation of the universe. It's asking and then answering practical questions like, what do I do about my temper? You know, what does a good life look like? Is happiness important? Where can one find happiness? What's the proper response to, you know, financial success? What does one do when they're experiencing poverty? How does one handle their fear of death, right? These are questions that if you can answer, and there is no like, here is the answer. Viktor Frankl says, there is no answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? Your actions are the answer to that question. But I think what the Stoics are saying is that if you can struggle with and ask yourself these questions and work towards an answer, you will live a better life and you will live a more complete life. I mean, a better question provides you with a better answer, and those are the good questions. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And look, most people, religion used to occupy the space in which those questions existed. But increasingly, people don't have religion, and, and or they don't follow it day to day, or the community that religion once had that sort of bound us all together. Like, you know, the majority of the world is Christian. You don't have to ask yourself what happens when you die because you're just supposed to assume that you go to heaven or hell, right? And if you don't believe that, then you're not asking yourself, you know, what you think happens or what should happen. You're just going to be sort of preoccupied with this fear. And that sort of denial of that fear is going to shape decisions that you make. Maybe you convince yourself that you have to become extraordinarily wealthy or, be, or famous or, or influential to compensate for this sort of fear that you have about death. And you know, that's not a great use of anyone's time. And your banker's not going to show up at your graveside anyway. Totally right. And I mean, Marcus Aurelius says this too. There's one of my favorite lines in meditations is he says, Alexander the Great and his mule driver both died. <laughs> the same thing happened to both and they were buried, you know, in the same earth. So this sort of stoic reminder that, hey, what really matters is whether you were a good person while you were alive and whether you enjoyed your life while you had it because, you never really know what occurs after that. Let me uh, shift this into Zen Buddhism a little bit and Stoicism. And mm -hmm. I, I want to I talk about Zen. You're a meditator, right? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Not, I'm, I think I'm like most people in that I don't do it nearly as much as I know that I should. That's everybody, I think, that yes. meditates. So there, you're right in with the group. Meditation, the idea there in Zen is basically you, you accept things how they are. And mm -hmm. so, in meditation, you're letting your mind settle. So, I want to just talk about the difference between that and Stoicism, because my, my question for you, is Stoicism really sort of a, an acknowledging that things are what they are and sort of an acceptance? Absolutely, they are. And look, it's not a coincidence that Marcus Aurelius's you know, famous work is meditations. People forget that Stoicism is a, is a set of exercises and routines, sort of much like Buddhism, but I think there's two, there's a, a wonderful line from Epictetus where he says, we must learn to practice the art of acquiescence, which I love. And then Nietzsche talking about the Stoics comes up with this concept called amor fati, which in Latin just translates to, to a love of fate. And so the Stoics, it wasn't just accepting things. And I think this is a very Buddhist idea. It's not just accepting things, but it's being grateful that they are however they are because that's the best possible thing that could have happened to you. And then making sure that your reaction bears this in mind and focuses on embracing, accepting, and making the most of that thing, whatever it happens to be. Even, you know, quote unquote, bad things like 
death or war or pain or fear, whatever it is, we don't know what the alternative could have been. It could have been much worse. So like, so the Stoics are saying, this is the best possible outcome. This is the outcome that was fated for you by the universe. And now it's on you to accept it and to live in response to it. My mom and my grandmother were both Stoics without knowing that they were. Both mm-hmm. both Catholic, but both Stoics. My grandmother raised five kids by herself, and my mom wow. four kids by herself. And they just accepted everything. And they're both the two best examples I've ever had of Stoicism in my life. So I think I picked up that as a philosophy from just watching, because when they were you know, struggling with kids and poor, we had what we had, we didn't have what we didn't have, and you may do. And sure. there, there was always enough food and there was always enough love and those things. But I mean, basically, those are the two most stoic people I ever saw, I think, just out of the circumstances of of their lives at that time. Let me let me stay with this thing on Zen for just a minute with you. So I think Zen, to me, it, it feels easier. And conceptually, it might be easier because the practice is actually meditation. And in some ways, you know, the difficulty with Zen is Cohen's and what is the sound of one hand clapping? And no matter what you answer, the your Zen master is going to hit you with a stick for, yes. for, for trying to answer. But because Stoicism is so Western and rational and logical in comparison, it may be even harder to practice. So what does a practice of Stoicism look like for people who are thinking about how would I practically apply a philosophy to my day-to-day life? What do you have to do to do that? Sure. I, I've, I've heard that before about, you know, sort of is one easier or, or, or is one better or whatever. The, the way I think about it is, Obviously, Stoicism is Western, but we live in a Western world. We live in a world that's been shaped by the sort of Western ethos for now thousands of years. So I find like Stoicism was shaped by the the sort of the needs of the productive, capitalistic, you know, militaristic, advanced civilization of the Romans. So I, I find it to be particularly well suited to modern life in a way that for me, Zen Buddhism sort of conjures up the temple high up in the mountains or in some lush, green, beautiful. And, and to me, Stoicism is the man in the marketplace or the soldier on horseback or the businessman or the, the traveler, or whatever you have. I got just the opposite side of that. So I, I picture the Japanese samurai with the Zen okay. thing. Yeah. Sure, sure. Same, and, same and look, thing. It's not a coincidence that both philosophies were popular with men and women of arms, right? Because you need some sort of philosophy there in in such a difficult endeavor. But in terms of the philosophy, look, I I think people don't necessarily understand the genre that that Marcus Aurelius' work fits in, for instance. They see it as a book and they go, okay, he must have written this book for people to read. And that's what Stoic philosophy is. They don't realize that actually he never intended this to be published we have no idea what order he actually wrote these things in. All we know is that at, in the morning or at night, he would sit down and he was writing down these exercises. This was a workbook. We have Marcus Aurelius's philosophy exercise workbook. We don't have a comprehensive explanation of the philosophy. So it's the idea of, of repeating these sort of mantras or these ideas, particularly after we've maybe done the opposite of that thing. So what I take is like when Marcus Aurelius is maybe talking about jealousy, that might have been because earlier in the day he had some jealous reaction to things. So it's it's sort of a, a review of the day before or after. When Marcus Aurelius says, you know, in the morning, remind yourself that you're going to meet people who are rude, selfish, ridiculous. He's writing that, not theoretically, but he's saying like, Today, when you go outside, people are going to be jerks, and you should know that, and then not hold it against them and not be disappointed when they don't behave like you would maybe prefer. So I see Stoicism as being practice-based as Zen Buddhism. They're just not explicitly saying, you know, sit there with your legs crossed and your eyes closed and have quiet time. Yeah, it's interesting. I study with a guy named uh, Genpo Roshi, and uh, he does a lot of work with voices and, mm-hmm. you know, the, all, all the different voices. And we had an interesting conversation once. I've only ever told this story one other place, but I was in a complicated negotiation with a prospective client. And we got to a deal, and he moved the goalpost on me. Mm-hmm. And I, I found a way to get back to a deal, and then he moved the goalpost on me again. And at that point, we we got sideways pretty quick. 
we were having a call and I basically was telling the story and I, I said, you know, he was a bully and it got adversarial and I think I was attached to the outcome I wanted. I don't do well with bullies. And, and right. Roshi said, are you asking me a question or do you just want me to comment on this? I said, I guess I just want to hear your comments. And he said, you're worried about his inner bully and his inner asshole and you need to look at your inner bully and your inner asshole. Sure. And and I went, okay, so the inner asshole I'm very well in tune with. I know that voice perfectly. I said, but I'm not a bully. And he said, okay, like a Zen master would. And yeah. he said, well, but why don't you just ask the people that love and care about you whether or not you have the voice of the bully from time to time and how that manifests. And so the next day I told the story to my wife and she's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. When you think you're being an asshole, you're being a bully. And I'm like, what? I mean, how is this not surface? So I went back to him. And I said, I'm going to figure out how not to use that voice. And he said, it's the worst thing you can do. You're going to bring it out in even more terrible ways. And so some of what Marcus Aurelius was doing was saying, you know, I've got this voice. So rather than deciding to use it here or here, I'm going to go through the exercise of deciding how I'm going to respond when these things happen. Is I that is, is that I the think, practice? I think that's right. And And, you know, I love that exchange you just said. And there's a line in in meditations where, you know, he says, when someone does you wrong, the response is not to get angry. It's to ask yourself when you have behaved like that. And so you see over and over again, he's saying, look, you can't change people. You can just learn to accept them and you can just learn to tolerate them. And I think he's probably saying to a certain degree, you can't necessarily change yourself radically. You can learn to accept yourself and work with yourself and that these are attitudes that are much closer to sanity than whipping yourself or whipping other people are, is ever going to be. Yeah, it's interesting. As uh, Roshi said to me, you know, that voice served you at some point in your life. When did it serve you? And I remember being a kid and when people were bullied or I was bullied, I would turn that voice on and and that voice served me. And so you end up developing that voice and then maybe you're using it unconsciously. Yeah. The, the idea of what Stoicism or Buddhism or some other philosophy, whatever it is, contemplative prayer, I mean, to actually just sit and think about that and decide what are you going to do. Let me dive into more on ego here as we sort of transition into that. Why yeah. is, it, is it so difficult for us to recognize how much it's our own ego that's getting in the way of the life and the results that we want? I mean, because we have everybody has an ego. Nobody yes. thinks they have an ego. And the people who I think behave badly a lot of times don't recognize they have one at all, but you can see it that it's the obstacle, even when when I can't see it, that's the obstacle for me. There's two things. I think one is, or there, there's two ways that this is problematic. I think one is we think that ego is a good thing. We see like really successful people act like jerks. We hear stories about Steve Jobs or Kanye West or whoever it is, and we just sort of go, okay, that's how successful people act. That's how I'm going to act. So I think sometimes when we're being egotistical or we're being bad, we're not, that's not actually who we are. It's an act we're putting on because we think that's the way that we're supposed to be. And so I think in some senses, like it's been interesting to see some of the early response to the book from people who haven't read it yet, just from the title getting really upset, right? Like, and so to me, it's like, I know that they have a problem with ego because there's not a single book title in the world that's going to make me mad before I read it unless it's striking some part of myself that's already very raw and sensitive. Now, I think the other part, what I've come to realize about ego is it's not that I'm not advocating some state of egolessness or that if you do these magical things or follow these steps, you will be without ego. To think that that's possible is probably, ironically, egotistical. It's making sure that the decisions that you are making are not primarily motivated by ego. I dealt with this with the obstacles away a little bit too. I'm not saying that human beings are rational. I'm saying that you get in a car accident you're going to have some hormones that you're going to, maybe you're going to go into shock. You're going to blah, blah, blah. You're going to have a response, but you're ultimately going to decide what that event means in your own life. If you suddenly said something very insulting to me, I'm going to feel my defenses rising up, right? But I still have a moment there. There's a, a half second where I get to choose how I'm going to respond to, or not. I get to choose whether I'm going to respond in kind, whether I'm going to say, hey, sorry, this isn't working, let's talk later, or you don't mean that, or whatever. 
I think part of the reason why so many people are in the sway of ego is that they're just natural, normal people, but because they're always doing, 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 and they never stop, there's never a beat between stimulus and response, they end up doing more things out of ego than really they would do if they, you know, Buddhism sort of practices that pause. And if people could incorporate that pause in their life, I think they would make fewer decisions out of ego and fewer decisions out of emotion as well. I got that from Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is the pause, the time between the stimulus and response is the thing that allows you to determine the outcome yeah. that, that you really want. And I could reread that book like Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus every every year just to be reminded of how little of it sinks in and how difficult it is in practice. And intellectually, you can understand it, but putting yeah, it in a- practice is much different. There's a quote from Chris Hadfield, who's the, the Canadian astronaut, who's one of my favorite thinkers. And he, he says, look, in space, you have to remember there's no problem that you can't also make worse. Um, and, and I think that's true in life, too, right? And, and ego and emotion and, and a lot of these things are what that's the deciding factor between a problem that's pretty bad and a problem that's catastrophic is, is us making it worse. That's my new favorite leadership maxim of all leadership maxims. There is no yeah. problem which you can't make worse. And it's true because so many, like, you know, there's that, there's that other adage, like the first rule of holes is when you're in one, stop digging. But uh, it usually takes us some time to realize that we're in a hole. Yeah. Let me ask more about the ego. Why are, well, first, I want to go backwards for just a second. The thing you said about Steve Jobs and other people who behave badly, I love that you address that. And I know it's in the introduction of the book. People think that that bad behavior is causality. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what's actually driven their success when, in fact, it probably, you know, held them back more than anything. I I don't understand why we do that. And you've got, I think you've got Steve Jobs and Kanye in the Yeah, if I remember right. Yeah, so that's two. I appreciate you doing that because so many of the clickbait web links that you see are all saying, you know, the secrets of Steve Jobs and you go into things like the bad behavior. That's really not a great recipe for people who are trying to generate greater results. They'd be better off with uh, something like either one of your books. Your new ones. Let's go to recognition and significance. Why are we so crippled by recognition and significance and a sense of self-importance in in our lives? And it seems to me that if you were to look at anything, when you, you see a lot of bad behavior, what's behind it is this need for significance or a sense of importance. Yeah. And look, what I think you realize when you get a little bit of that recognition, you know, so something you write gets some attention or you start to be financially successful or your business takes off or whatever it is, you realize that it, it doesn't solve the problem that you have. It's great. It's worth doing. I'm not saying that success is bad, but the sooner that you can realize that none of these things are going to fill whatever hole you have inside you, Ultimately, not only are you going to be a happier person, but you're going to be much more rational and in control of whatever business or or creative venture you decide to pursue. It's like if I was writing books because I wanted to be famous, there I would never be able to be famous enough to feel like I've done it. And so realizing early on that, hey, maybe that was a little bit of what my motivation was and being able to realize that that's not a good motivation and that the, the more I can separate myself from it, the better has allowed me to say, okay, these are what my actual goals are. This is what's actually important to me. This is what success actually looks like. And that these things are much more attainable. So I think, I think part of the reason is, you know, for a lot of people, it's something you went through in your childhood. It's a deficiency in some form or another that you feel like you have to make up for now. And the more you can look inward, whether it's meditation or studying philosophy and realize that this is a fool's errand, the more heartache you're going to save yourself. You've got the book broken down into three stages in this, or three major sections. I wonder if you could just walk us through the sections. So ego, when it comes to aspirations, ego, when it comes to success, and ego, when it comes to failure, and maybe a sketch of sort of a lesson to Mm -hmm. like the single lesson from the section of the book to say, if you're looking at this, these are the things you might think about when it comes to your aspirations, what success means and what failure means. Well, I think 
my contention is that ego manifests itself in radically different ways depending on where we are in life. And we, we are always in different phases in life. I don't think it's like you're here and then you're here forever. It's, it's, you're, you're sort of rotating on this spectrum. But when you're aspiring to do something, especially when you're young, ego can manifest itself in, in you know, the form of overconfidence, the form of sort of zealousness. Or in thinking that hype and marketing are more important than doing the work. It can manifest itself in thinking that you've already learned everything that there is to learn, that that you're special or better than everyone else. And so in this way, ego makes it harder to, to learn, to build relationships, to put in the hours necessary to get good at what you're doing, to build the foundation of excellence that you need to ultimately be successful. So let's say you sort of managed to mitigate the effects of ego at that phase in your life and you've accomplished something, right? Maybe you've, you've made a couple million dollars, you've achieved some prominent position and there's in the military or in a company, maybe you started your own company, whatever it is. Ego manifests itself differently when you are a prominent individual or a successful individual. Ego might manifest itself in complacency or micromanaging, like, you know, needing to be in control all the time. Maybe you stop learning because you feel like you've mastered this thing. Maybe you become self-absorbed, self-obsessed. Pat Riley calls this the disease of me. I think that sinks a lot of successful people. And so obviously success isn't yours by right. Just because you've had it doesn't mean that people are going to stop trying to take it from you. Doesn't mean it can't start to crumble. So a, a lot of successful people are not sunk by outside forces. They implode because ego has begun to eat away at the discipline that created that success in the first place. And then that, in my opinion, leads us to the third phase of life, which is failure or adversity, sort of what I'm just talking about in the obstacles away. But Let's say you failed. Let's say your business hits a rough patch. Let's say some scandal has, has happened and you're embarrassed. Well, now the problem is ego starts to take all these things personally in the way that ego believes that success says something about you as, as a person. It's equally vicious in the way that it says failure says something about you as a person. So just because you went bankrupt doesn't mean that you're you know worthless. It just means that your bank account has less money in it. But ego, ego is so caught up in that that it makes it harder to overcome it. You know, a lot of people double down on whatever got them into trouble in the first place. They blame other people for their problems. They get depressed, you know, they, they stop trying. So whether you're aspiring, whether you're successful, or whether you're going through something really difficult, ego is sort of the worst element you could possibly introduce into these situations because the situations are hard enough as they exist already. The last thing you want to you want to inject in there would be like delusion or pride or selfishness. And if you're human and you do aspire and you do have successes, failure is going to come with the territory. And totally. you're, you're probably going to go through all of these things at some level, greater or smaller, depending on how you come into them, right? Well, yeah. Like, look, once you succeed at something, oftentimes you decide, hey, I want to do something else. Or I want to, let's say you built a local business, like a restaurant, and you got really good at it and you're the best restaurant in town. And now you've decided that you're going to take this chain nationally. If you take that same attitude, that attitude of, of dominance and self-assuredness and, and a feeling of mastery from your regional level and you apply it naturally instead of approaching this new venture with the same humility and openness and hard work and restraint that you applied originally to your business, you're going to crash and burn at a level that's going to imperil not just the success of this new venture, but everything that came before you. And so that's why I think you see so many successful people overreach. You look at someone like Kanye West with the release of his last album, he admitted that he's something like $50 million in debt because of these fashion ventures that he's tried and failed at. So it's not that failure is bad, but when you lose $50 million on something that you don't have, it's probably because you were approaching it with a certain overconfidence or a lack of objectivity. Kanye? And, and, no yes. way. No exactly. way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and look, that the ego that he has about his music, people might say, is well-deserved. 
But the problem with that gamble is that it often bleeds over to whatever else you're doing, and that's where it costs you. I can just see him, though. You look at like Sean Combs and you know the success that he's had with clothing and other ventures, and you look at somebody like 50 Cent who's got the, the vitamin water story and all those things. You probably think, yeah, you can't just jump into this. There's that line, and I don't know if you've watched the show Billions, which yeah, I love is amazing. It. But you know, he does that trade in like one of the later episodes that everyone was advising him against, and then it blows up. He loses a lot of money, and the therapist she goes like, "Why did you do this?" And he says, "Look, when people call you Superman for long enough, you start to think you can fly." <laughs> and I think that's what happens. It's also when you see everyone else around you flying, maybe you feel like you picked it up in your sleep, and you know, chances are you didn't. What I like about you, Ryan, is that you're a practitioner and it comes out in your writing and in your interviews and even your blog. I mean, it's clear that you're a practitioner. So I, I admire that it's not theory for you. So I've got some questions here that are more practitioner questions because I want to take this interview in that direction and talk about the practice. So do, right, I love it. do you have thoughts on how to quiet your ego? Asking for a friend. Yeah. 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 Me too. Me too. Uh, Look, one of the, the dirty secrets about being a writer is that you can write the book that you need more than maybe you think other people need. So for me, writing a book and studying this topic was like my way of addressing something that I felt was wrong with me. So spending you know two years reading books, writing about something, and going through it. I mean, I thought this book was going to be about something else. I ended up changing my mind, and I write it, and then it comes back from an editor, and it's covered you know, in red ink. And so for me, one of the ways that you crush your ego is by pursuing a humbling craft or an occupation that you can never really be perfect at, right? Like people might say that Michael Jordan has an ego, but I guarantee you every time Michael Jordan would step on the court, there would be that tinge of nervousness or butterflies because the game is so hard and so many things can go wrong. Like even in a good NBA season, you know, a team is going to lose dozens of games. And so I think by attaching yourself to something that is inherently humbling, and I think apprenticeships or mentorships can accomplish the same thing, that is probably the single most effective way to, to, to tackle your ego in, in the sort of holistic sense. More practically, you know, I think having quiet time, as you talked about, I do a lot of strenuous exercise. I find that that is a way for me to sort of beat back my ego. And then, look, I, I choose to live in a town like Austin. I've sort of detached myself from, from some of the, the quote-unquote scene. These are ways that you sort of make sure that your ego, once you have got it in check, stays in check because you're not keeping up with the Joneses all the time. I'm going to go back to the benefits of making space, but I just want to ask, so how many breaths does it take when you see all the red ink before you're actually able to process what the red ink actually says? Again, a, a asking for a friend. because A, a minimum of 24 hours. <laughs> like the, the key is, and this goes to what we we're talking about earlier, the key is if you respond to something immediately, you're probably immediately going to regret whatever your response was. And so I sort of go through whatever the stages of grief are, right? Like I get the notes back and I'm like, who does this person think they are? They don't know anything. They're trying to ruin this. I'm going to quit and self-publish it. You know, that, that's my initial response. And then 24 hours later, I look at it and I go, oh, you know what? Okay, this one, this one little part, they're right about that. And then actually, they're right about all these other parts. <laughs> you know what? Actually, they're right about all of it. And I'm just going to quietly do acquiesce to 100% of the notes, you know? It's so funny as you get those back and I'm looking like, yeah, if they had that question, everybody else in the world is going to have the same question. They're right. I got to go back. There's a great line from Neil Gaiman and he says, look, when people tell you, like in your writing, when someone tells you something is wrong, they're almost always right. When they tell you how to fix it, they're almost always wrong. <laughs> yeah, and and so if you can just go, okay, they have a point here. Something is not working as well as I thought it was working now I have to go fix it. That's very helpful. Let's talk about the benefits of making space. So you've talked about being quiet, which it could be meditation, it could be whatever. And you also talked about strenuous exercise. Mm -hmm. What are the benefits of that for you in making that space in your life? Well, I think it's turning the mind off, especially if you're a, a, someone who's in your head a lot. If you can turn your mind off 
where you just think nothing for a little bit. It's like you're giving the muscle just a break, even if it's for two seconds. So I have trouble like just sitting still. It's it's not super comfortable for me. So I find that if I'm exercising, I'm like giving my body a workout and then my mind is more or less off. And so I'm accomplishing the same thing in a way that's just a little bit more conducive to me. There's a chapter in the book I talk about meditating on the immensity. And there's a line from Pierre Hadot, who's a French Stoic, and he talks about what he called the oceanic experience. And that's when you're sort of out in nature and you just feel humbled by the bigness of everything that's around you. That's another way to do it. You walk into the redwood forest or you know, you walk along the beach at night. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It's very hard to have much ego or to have really anything but stillness in that moment because relative to what's happening around you, you're a tiny insignificant minor thing that's somewhat of a glimpse of enlightenment i think so yeah i think so do you journal i do i do i'm sitting at my desk i have it in front of me i usually write in the mornings i have like a little moleskine and i write I, i sort of catalog what you know notable things from the day before i write down what exercise i did and then i'll usually say something that i'm working on or that i want to improve like hey i don't like how stressed you've been recently you should stop that or you know the way i'm i'm not saying you i'm saying it in the first person sure. you know i don't like how much i've i've been yelling lately or i don't like how i haven't had any time to myself recently i'm taking on too much you know you shouldn't be doing this you know, I'm, I'm sort of writing little reminders to myself about what I want to do differently or better. Do you find that helps? I do. And look, I try not to do a ton of journaling the way that, like, as a writer, sitting down and writing is not the most relaxing thing in the world to me. So I don't want to fill up. I, I could write all day, but that's sort of my job also. So I'm, I'm trying to keep it as you know, under five minutes usually in, in, in the writing. So you're not in the, the Tim Ferriss camp of about three or four pages, morning pages um, kind of thing. I mean, these are little pages, although I know Tim's a big fan of, of the five-minute journal, yeah. which a lot of people use. I don't really want the prompts or, or like the quotes and stuff. I, I totally get why they're amazing for, for certain people. I just like a little bit of a blank page where I'm writing some stuff down. And then hopefully I try to go back through the journal every couple months and I, I can see trends as they've been developing. Quotes would be overkill for you anyway because you're all full of quotes already. Yeah, I mean, look, that's my my job is yeah. to find quotes and and to write down my thoughts about them. So that's sort of why I try not to do those things. Okay, so this is the most dangerous question I'm going to ask you. This is in my lightning round of questions I like to ask okay. every guest, but you're the most dangerous person that I can ask this to because I'm not sure how much time we have. That question is, what are you reading right now? So I'm in the middle of, I used to read a ton, like I would try to go through as many books as possible. I've been trying to tackle really big books recently. So a few months ago, I read the entire Robert Caro series on Lyndon Johnson, which I think he's been writing for like 30 years and Lyndon Johnson. 40, I think. It's some crazy number. Lyndon Johnson has just become president, like at the end of the fourth book. So that took a long time. And then I just started, William Manchester wrote a three-part series on Winston Churchill. I just finished the first one. And this afternoon I was reading the second volume. So these are, I think each one of the books is like 900 pages. So I'm trying to read really big books. And in a way that sort of goes to the stillness thing that we're talking about. I'm trying to lose myself in this larger study of a singular person rather than maybe reading, you know, three business books a week or or whatever I might've done when I was 20 years old. And I felt like I just had to cram my brain full of information. I'm trying to slow down my reading and read deeper. I'm trying That's to, exactly go, to, to just go slower because I did the same thing. It was, I had to read everything when it came out. And then I thought, you know what, there's zero practical application in reading something at that speed if there's yes. nothing that you can do different or think different because you just read it. So I'm I'm hooked right now on Talib's Anti-Fragile, which I think is That's a, a fantastic book. And, and a practical application book, even though he doesn't make it easy for you to to think through the practical application. It's certainly something for a a life philosophy that's a nice thing for you. Have you read his book of aphorisms? I love it. 
Uh, I like that you could probably use one as a palate cleanser for the other. (laughs) Yeah, it's a wonderful book. This is a tough question for you, I think. What's the most important book you've read and why? I mean, if you had to pick something. Yeah, I, I think obviously I would go with the Stoics just because it's it sort of set me on this path and it's how I've tried to live my would, life. So it would be the would you pick one? Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, the Gregory Hayes translation, has certainly been the single most influential book in my entire life. If I was to say I love novels for that same reason, the most influential novel in my life is probably a book called What Makes Sammy Run by Bud Schulberg. It's actually somehow in total coincidence, it's in the conclusion of, of Ego. And it was a book that I'd read when I was like 20 years old. And I, I'd obviously thought I you know, took all the lessons to heart. And as I was writing the conclusion to Ego, it reminded me of the book for some reason. And I, I went to, I took it off the shelf and I reread it. And as I got to the last page, I realized that I'd handwritten three pages of notes on the back of the book. And I just totally forgotten about this and then had to learn by experience the exact same thing that I'd had spelled out to me in my favorite book, you know, 10 years previous. So I think it's, it's not just the book that was really meaningful to you at one point or another, but it's what book do you find yourself reading over and over again and getting new things out of? To me, that is the mark of a, of a truly great book. Me too. Who has had the biggest influence on your thinking? Living or dead? doesn't matter either. So again, obviously the Stoics, I feel like they have an aphorism or a line for essentially every situation. Then, then so, go to living, because we'll take uh, Aurelius, Epictetus, yeah. and Seneca, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Probably Robert Greene. I met Robert when I was 18. He had written several of my favorite books. You know, he wrote The 48 Laws of Power. He wrote a book called The 33 Strategies of War, which were very educational to me as a kid who basically knew nothing about the world. But watching and studying under Robert for now 10 years and watching this person who is so dedicated to what they do, who's never let his massive amounts of success go to his head, who sort of does only what he likes, but is incredibly generous and patient and kind. He's sort of the model that I've tried to base the career that I've been building as a writer around, you know, and if I could accomplish sort of a fraction of what he's accomplished, I would consider myself having done very well. But mostly if I could just be that kind of person, I would also have considered myself a success. What book did you apprentice for him on? So I worked on a book he wrote with 50 Cent called The 50th Law. And then I worked on a book that he wrote after that called Mastery. Oh, yeah, that's a good book. I have all his books. I was going to pull them off the shelf behind me, but they're buried behind a lot of books. Yeah, no, you've got quite a shelf. Yeah, I'm slowing down, though. Good, good, me too. What's the most important lesson you've learned in life up till now? I feel like I don't have an easy answer to that question. I remember, and I, I don't even remember who told it to me, but I was sort of asking for some life advice and and he just said to me, all you got to do in life is be a good person and do what you love. If you just remember those two things, that's basically the secret. And I've, I've tried to think about that. Probably, I've probably thought about that every day since. It's just a, it's like, wait, should I be doing this or should I be doing that? It's like, hey, is this something a good person would do? Is this a thing that I love to do? And if it is, then it's probably good. I just interviewed David Allen from uh, Getting Things Done, and the conversation yeah. I had with him is almost if you don't know what the answer is, you need to move up to a higher level in the way of thinking about your values, your purpose, and your meaning. Because almost instantly, if you go up to, is this part of my purpose and what I'm here for? And is this something that makes me a good person? You can get yes. the answer pretty quickly. It's sort of when you get wrapped around the axle thinking about the problem. You know, then it's, it seems tough to answer. But if you move up levels, it gets much clearer. I think that's right. And I also like, and I don't do this enough, probably because I do a lot of interviews and it's bad form, but I love when you ask people a question and they say they don't know, and they just leave it at that. I feel like there's so much pressure to pretend that you know, or to just come up with like a pretty good answer. And I think the study of philosophy and certainly the study of Buddhism is about embracing the fact that you know very, very little and being comfortable and okay with that. 
you know mostly nothing. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's it. I, you know what? I, I'm a sales guy. And one of the hardest things to teach salespeople is when they're asked a question they don't know the answer to, to say, I don't know the answer to that question, but let me see if I can find an answer for you. I mean, that, that, that's the only right answer. And, and but you, they talk. Sure. And you don't realize how refreshing that answer is and how often it creates a deeper connection than whatever you think you're doing by making something up. If you weren't writing, speaking, consulting, what would you be doing? I don't know. Um, You'd be the coolest college professor. I think I, I would like that. Although yeah. I wonder if I, I feel like, you know, that would lead eventually to what I'm doing now. So if I had to take <laughs> yeah. that one, that one off the table, I think I'd want to do something like very blue collar and then have my own life where I get to do these things on the side. My, my father was a police officer. I always liked the fact that he worked very hard, but then he never took his job, like his job ended, you know, when, when he came home. I think I would be attracted to a profession like that. My very first job when I was 13 years old was washing dishes. And I always remember that as my favorite job because the dishes were stacked. Yes. And you went home. There's a certain pride in completing a job. And one of the downsides of a creative profession is that it's, it's never complete. And the second you do think, like the second you think a book is done, first off, when you're finishing a book, there's like 30 points at which you think, and now I'm done. I can celebrate, but there's always something more. And then the second, right, exactly. That's the galley copy. I'm going through with this yellow highlighter. Totally. And and the second you are actually finished that with that book, like the day it comes out, you will be thinking about what comes next. So you never really get that that feeling. L- listen to this. So I I turned the book in. Actually, I was going to publish it without portfolio. Right. But I turned it in. And the day that I turned it into them, I wrote 3,600 words on the second book. Right. What right. is that? What kind of illness is that? It's the, the, the blessing and the curse of being a writer. The blessing is that I've already got my next book in the can, actually. like I'm going through the, the final, final proofing of my next book, which in some ways is a defense against the inherent unpredictability of how any one project will do, right? It's easy to be philosophical about the success or failure of a book when you've got another book coming down the pike and, and you've got a second chance. The curse is that you cannot not stop doing it. Yeah. It's a compulsion. Uh, I feel that. You're a young guy. You're, I, I think you're quite a bit younger than I am. But the, this last question is, what do you hope to be remembered for? Well, the Stoics obviously... I knew I'd get a Stoic back. answer on this. They, yeah, They try to push back on how valuable it actually is to be remembered for anything. So I guess I've tried to, I've tried to detach myself from the idea of any sense of sort of literary remembrance, because that's such an ephemeral thing. You know, I I got married last year. I'm starting a family. I'd like to be remembered for those things, but by a a much smaller number of people, right? Like it's in some ways, it's easier to try to focus on being remembered by people who didn't really know you. And I think it's much harder to try to, to live up to the standards and be remembered well by the people who who you spent, you know, almost every single day with. We're going to end it right there. That's the perfect answer. Thanks for awesome. being here, Ryan. Thanks for having me. It's, it's always good to talk to you. That was Ryan Holiday, and you can find him at ryanholiday.net. You'll also find that link in the show notes. I would recommend you go out and buy Ego is the Enemy, as well as The Obstacle is the Way. Both of those books belong together, and I think that you should read both of them. They're very, very powerful application of a very strong mindset and a philosophy that will serve you well in this disruptive age. So go look for those in the show notes. I'll also send you to some links where you can find more about Ryan. I am Anthony Anarino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com. When you go there, do look off to the right where there's a place for you to sign up for my newsletter, where I send 60 plus thousand people my very best idea every Sunday morning so they can apply it to their work when they get to work on Monday morning. Also, sign up to see my videos on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. And that's it for this week. I want to thank you for being here. Do go out to iTunes and give me a review. Tell me what you think. 
give it uh, five stars, give it one star, tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, and I will see you back here next time in the arena. I am Anthony Anarino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com. When you go there, you're going to be assaulted by a pop-up banner when you try to click on something or when you try to leave, and that's so that I can get your first name and your email address. I'm going to send you every Sunday morning content that you can use in your sales game or your business game or your success game that's long form, actionable, something that you're going to be able to look at Monday morning and say, I've got ideas and I can get to work improving myself and my results. Also, go visit me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. Do subscribe there where I'll send you video content, me talking into the camera, sharing ideas with you or interviewing other people. Thanks so much for being here. I'll see you next time right here in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.